0: This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. A video of the talk is also available, along with more downloads, on our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk. If you'd like to join us in person, our talks take place at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. Our introductory reading we just had there, a psalm of David, started with the words of praise to God. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. The readings, by the way, are taken from the New King James Version of the Bible. The universe, as we know, is is vast and unfathomable. It's estimated, apparently, that there are 100,000 million stars in our galaxy alone. I have no idea who tried to count them, but... Well, accept their word for it. It's a vast number. And beyond our galaxy, there's galaxies without number, apparently. And we can see from our reading in Psalm 8 that the nature of man is very different from the nature of God. We can read there, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? And when we talk about man, of course, we mean... Mankind, not just the male of the species. And we've divided our talk this afternoon into the following sections. We're going to see that man is very inquisitive and very ingenious. Man has always been capable of outstanding achievements, and that's, I think, undeniable. His achievements are not always for good. But also we'll see that despite his ingenuity, the Bible tells us that man is but dust, that man is mortal and does not possess an immortal soul the Bible also tells us of the state of man's heart and again perhaps not always for good but despite his shortcomings God still offers us a wonderful hope and we're going to look at that towards the end of the talk hope to those who will follow his ways very recently earlier this year we have been reminding ourselves or been remembering the first man to walk on the moon 50 years ago Now, some may regard it as a complete waste of money, but whatever, we cannot deny that it was an incredible achievement. Guided by crude computer systems, by today's standards anyway, they were able to go to, land on and return safely from our nearest planetary neighbour, a mere 250,000 miles away. I am told that mobile phones, modern ones, have more computing capacity ...than that enjoyed by those pioneers back in 1969. Apparently the iPhone has 7 million more times more memory and processing capacity... ...than that of the guidance computer that you see there of the, the lunar module. Wonderful pictures of our planet were beamed back from the moon a quarter of a million miles away... ...and at least it proved the nonsense theory of those who believe that the Earth is flat... Supported by a giant elephant. And in scripture we can read there, God stretches out the north over the empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. O give thanks to the Lord, to him who by wisdom made the heavens, to him who laid out the earth above the waters. God has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom, and has stretched out the heavens at his discretion. I, God says, have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens, and all their host I have commanded. Inquisitive and ingenious man may be, but the Apollo program was very, very expensive. The total cost of the program, which landed six lunar modules and 12 men on the moon between 1969 and 1972, was $25 billion, which in today's money equates to around $150 billion, or in our terms, around £125 billion. So it wasn't cheap to put these men on the moon. Since then, space exploration has gone even further than the 250,000 miles to the moon. In the late 1970s, NASA launched the Voyager Projects, Voyager 1, Voyager 2, they both blasted off in the same year in 1977... ...but with different uh, trajectories and different missions. But between them, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2... ...have explored all the giant planets in our solar system... ...and 48 of their moons, some of which had not been seen before. Voyager 2 visited Jupiter... ...whoops, went too quickly there... ...Voyager 2 visited Jupiter in 1979 visited Saturn in 1981, Uranus in 1986 before making its closest approach to Neptune on August the 25th, 1989, 12 years after its launch. It took that long to get to that furthermost planet, Neptune. The Voyagers are now heading into outer space. Voyager 1 apparently is zooming along at a mere 38,000 miles an hour and is currently 15 billion miles from earth voyager 2 we said took a different route through the solar system that's now 12 billion miles from home and they're still transmitting data however failing power supply means they will stop transmitting by about 2025 nearly 50 years after their launch they've gone through uh, they're, they're now in outer space as we've said and that 's what they, they looked like, voyagers One and Voyager Two. Voyager Two took everyone by surprise when it passed Uranus and discovered that it had a ring system like Saturn. It had never been seen before, and there you see the planet, the picture of the planet that Voyager Two uh, t- transmitted back in nineteen eighty nine Voyager Two became the first spacecraft to observe the planet Neptune and it makes its closest encounter with the planet at something like 3,000 miles above the cloud tops of the most distant planet, sorry, the most distant proper planet in our solar system. When Neptune and Earth line up on the same side of the sun, at their closest, they are about 2.7 billion miles apart. We said Neptune was the furthest most planet. Pluto is not now regarded as a planet. It's a dwarf planet, apparently, rather than a full-size one. And Voyager 2 took 12 years to reach this one, Pluto, 12 years from launch, a distance of approximately 3 billion miles from Earth. To be able to direct a probe so far and so accurately requires the planetary orbits of these heavenly bodies to be predictable and constant and shows, I would suggest, the wonder of God's design of the universe. How clever... Man is. More recently, NASA launched the Cassini space probe. This was launched in 1997. They launched it to Saturn, specifically, to study the planet and its moons, and was active for nearly 20 years. It's not transmitting now. The name of the probe was taken from an astronomer called Giovanni Cassini, who first discovered the rings of the planet in 1675 and that's what he would have seen something like that anyway through a primitive telescope an image like that so he saw the rings like that but since then we have seen some better images from the Cassini space probe some stunning images of Saturn in all its glory and its rings the heavens declare the glory of God Psalm 19 tells us and the firmament shows his handiwork. the psalm that psalm goes on to say he counts the numbers of the star- the number of the stars he calls them all by name. that I find so incredible that God not only knows the number of them but actually can name them. So much has been developed in uh, such a short period of time on December seventeenth nineteen o three. Wilbur and Orville Wright made the first powered aircraft flight in 1969 the same year as the first moon landing Pan Am took its first delivery of the Boeing 747 or the jumbo jet so from planes held together by bits of wood and bits of string to these wide bodied jet powered airliners capable of carrying something like 450 passengers all within a 66 year time frame So we've seen that man is curious and is full of ingenuity. But what does the Bible say about the nature of man? Well it says quite unequivocally that man is a creature of dust. Genesis 2. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. And because man was created from dust so to dust will he return on death. In the sweat of your face God says to Adam You shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken and for dust you are and to dust you shall return. Then again in Psalm 103 For he, God, knows our frame he remembers that we are dust as for for man his days are like grass as a flower of the field so he flourishes For the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. Solomon, in his God-given wisdom, wrote about the nature of man in Ecclesiastes. He says there, for what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. All go unto one place. All are from the dust. And all return to dust. He says, Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upwards, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth? He continues in the ninth chapter of Ecclesiastes by saying, For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work, nor device, or knowledge, or wisdom in the grave where you are going. It's uh, quite clear what the Bible says then about the nature of man. The message is consistent in the New Testament also. We've just looked at the Old Testament, but in Romans chapter 5, we can read there, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin So death spread to all men because all sinned. So we can see man is mortal. And though we can marvel that 12 men have stood on the moon and their achievements may be immortalized, we recognize that they are mortal. In fact, I think only four of those moonwalkers are are alive today. So eight have already died since then. We quoted this verse earlier to show that man was dust, but now to show that man has a living soul. So the last few lines there, the man became a living being. That's the New King James, or the authorised version says soul. But it's the same Hebrew word called nefesh. The words soul and immortal do appear in the Bible, but never together. Quite the contrary, as we can see from this verse. The soul is described as living and therefore by definition capable of dying. The Hebrew word translated soul or creature is this word as we can see there in red. The word is nephesh. The word occurs over 750 times in the Old Testament. That's that word nephesh. And in the authorised version of the Bible the word is translated as soul around 500 times. So 250 times it's translated as other things. And in more modern versions... Uh, it does not often translated as soul. So if you look at further examples of this word nephesh. Uh, although as we said it's translated soul in the authorised version. In more modern versions of the Bible it's rendered differently. For example in Genesis chapter 1 we can read. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing. Nephesh. That moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind. And every winged bird. According to its kind. So we can see that sea creatures and birds are described by that same word, Nephesh, as living things. They don't just apply to man. Cattle and beasts are described with the same word. God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind. Cattle, creeping thing, and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. So cattle and beasts are described with exactly that same word. In in Exodus chapter 12, we can read there uh, another example of that word, nephesh. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone, so now it's translated as everyone, must eat. The verse is speaking about holy days, uh, that no work should be done on those days. And as we said here, nephesh is translated as everyone. In Judges... We read the story of Samson. Uh, and Samson said, let me, Perit, that's Nephesh again, die with the Philistines. So in this verse, Samson asked God to give him vengeance against his enemies. And here that word Nephesh is ran, rendered simply as me. Perhaps the most definitive words that souls are capable of dying comes in Ezekiel's prophecy. We can read there, God says, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine, the soul who sins shall die. If we go to the New Testament now, written in Greek, we have a different word for soul. It's, the same, it's a word called Suke, uh, and this too we can see is capable of dying. In Acts chapter 3, we read there, And it shall be that every soul, that's that word suke who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And in Revelation, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a dead man. And every living soul died in the sea. This word, suke, appears in the New Testament 105 times, of which in the authorised version, it's rendered 58 times, about half the total. Uh, it's rendered as soul, 40 times as life, 4 as heart, and three as mind, the same word. So the Hebrew and Greek words we have looked at convey a variety of different aspects except one, immortality. They don't convey that at all. The Bible tells us then in no uncertain terms that the soul is not an immortal entity. The same words in the original text can mean creature, living thing, and that can apply to sea creatures and birds and cattle it can mean everyone it can mean just simply a person it can mean a life or a heart or a mind and we can see that souls uh, that souls can die so that is the nature of man what about the heart of man well perhaps not literally man's heart of course but more about his mind <coughs> and the way that he thinks from the early days of mankind the heart was evil Genesis chapter 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. The Bible doesn't pull any punches in describing man's ways. In Jeremiah it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? Through the words of Jesus in the New Testament, adds confirmation to what lies in the heart. If we read that verse, what comes, Jesus says, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, evil, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things, Jesus says, come from within from man's heart and defile the man. So far we mostly looked at the perhaps the well, we've looked at the ingenious side of man, but we've also looked at the negative negative side of man's character. And yet the Bible tells us that God has given a promise of hope for mankind in the future. So for the last few slides we're going to look at that hope. Man's hope lies in a kingdom yet to come. But until that time, wherever we look in the world today, we see a hopeless world, one torn by strife, strife between political parties, very relevant today, isn't it? Strife between ethnic factions, conflict between nations, pollution, ever-present violence and increasing crime rates. Those who have more than enough food and those who do not. No man here on earth is able to solve the world's problems. What the world needs and urgently needs is an outstanding leader capable of delivering all the nations out of the present crisis. The Bible gives us hope of peace on earth when the Lord Jesus returns to establish God's kingdom. The Bible tells us that the key to peace is righteousness, And Isaiah's prophecy describes a king who will come. Behold a king will reign in righteousness. And princes will rule with justice. But he goes on to say. Righteousness must come first before peace can be achieved. There it says the work of righteousness will be peace. And the effect of righteousness quietness and assurance forever. The authority of the Lord will control the nations who will no longer waste their strength and resources in creating weapons of war again in Isaiah's prophecy we can read he, that's the righteous king shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people he shall beat, they shall beat their swords into plowshares their spears into pruning hooks nation shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore so despite man's ingenuity Despite the marvelous scientific and medical breakthroughs, the same ingenuity has created more and more sophisticated weapons of destruction, and these will be done away with. Then true peace, so elusive by man, will envelop the whole world through God's Son. There will be a new creation in the kingdom of God, not just lasting peace, but even death itself shall be conquered. And our final quote is from the last, second to the last book of the Bible, towards the end of our Bible, in Revelation chapter 21. We read there, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And so, despite man's wayward nature, God has given us a real message of hope for mankind and the world. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, videos, information about what we believe and details of our meeting times, go to our website,